for that. The Lord has been dealing with me for the course of six or seven weeks over this word, and it was at Youth Explosion this year when God dropped this question and, and these four words into my spirit that made absolutely no sense to me, and I had no context. I had not read anything. I had not listened to anything. I had not heard a sermon preached about this subject, but the words were this, what about the wall? What about the wall? And so my question to the Lord was, what about the wall? It made no sense. And he said, I want you to go and read the book of Nehemiah. And in my pursuit of study and reading through the book of Nehemiah, it read me to the previous book, Ezra, and it all began to align and make sense. So I feel like the Lord has given me very clear direction for this word tonight, and I pray that you would receive it. Would you pray with me right now, Lord Jesus? God, I pray that over the course of the rest of this service that your perfect will will be accomplished. And God, I pray right now that myself and every person that is in this room tonight, that we would evaluate the condition of our heart. God, you talked about that parable, that sower that went out to sow the seed, and you talked about the four grounds of soil. And Lord Jesus, I pray that we will be diligent tonight to look at our spirit and look at the condition of our heart and say, God, I don't want a hardened heart, and I don't want a seed that just bears root for a little while, and then the sun dries it out. I don't want to just hear the word, and then the cares and the riches and pleasures of life come back, and they choke it out because I didn't remove them from the field. But God, I open my heart, and I open my spirit to receive what is thus saith the Lord for this service and for this church, and I pray it all in Jesus' name that the seed of the word would fall on the good ground of our hearts. It had been a long time coming. It seemed like ages had passed since life had last felt normal. Livelihoods and jobs had been taken away. Nobody was able to work. Families were displaced and unable to see each other. The people had been separated, scattered, and silenced. They could no longer gather and worship the Lord in unity. Gone were the days of binding together in one accord with one purpose. Coming to the altar was no longer possible, and coming to the house of God wasn't even an option anymore. They had been removed from their normal, and they had begun to face a new normal. A normal that meant they could not just come and go as they chose. A normal that meant they did not have the freedom and the liberty that they were accustomed to. It had felt like everything they loved, everything they valued, everything they cherished, everything they cared about, everything they had lived for had been taken away from them. That year was 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had conquered Jerusalem, and that great city was destroyed. The walls were torn down and reduced to rubble. Every great house was demolished, and Solomon's temple was burned with fire, and the altar of sacrifice had been broken down. The Babylonians took anything that was of value, items made of bronze, silver, and gold, many of those items coming from the temple. The inhabitants of Jerusalem were exiled and taken into captivity. It was a dark time in their history. Many prophets spoke of the state of this divided nation of Israel. Micah, the prophet, had spoken that this destruction would come to pass because of their 500 years of rebellion. He spoke of the judgment of God that was coming because of their unrepentant lifestyle of sin that had replaced their worship 
and consecration to the one true living God. They were being punished for their sin and reproach against the law of God. But the prophet Micah didn't just speak of the doom and gloom status of their present reality, but he prophesied that one day they would once again gather and that there would be a restoration of the kingdom of Jerusalem. They would once again gather around an altar that true sacrifice and true worship to the Lord would be restored and that access to the house of the Lord would once again be made possible. Sound familiar? Ezra chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 in the King James Version says this, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation through all his kingdom, and he also put it in writing, saying, Thus thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven, hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go down to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with the silver, with the gold, with the goods and the beasts, beside the free will offering for the house of God that was in Jerusalem. It had been 70 years since they had experienced what it meant to be free, but now the Lord was calling his remnant to return to Judah. God had worked through a pagan king to allow Jerusalem to be destroyed, but now he was stirring the heart of another pagan king to allow it to be rebuilt. The 20-year invasion followed by 50 years of exile had been hard, but nonetheless, there was a remnant ready to return to the kingdom. King Cyrus had left an open invitation. He didn't force the remnant to go. He didn't shove them out of Babylon, but he allowed them the privilege to return. But not all of the people, not all of the remnant made that 900-mile journey that took four months to complete. Some simply decided to stay in Babylon, not desiring to go back to God's kingdom. They were not returning just to inhabit the land once again. They weren't just going there to occupy a physical kingdom. No, they were returning with a mission and a purpose. King Cyrus had loosed the remnant to rebuild the house of the Lord. And so that's exactly what the remnant did. They left Babylon and they made that four-month journey back down to Judah, back to Jerusalem, and they begin to rebuild. But the first thing that they did when they got back to Jerusalem was that they restored the altar. Ezra chapter 3 verses 1 to 3 says, in early autumn, When the Israelites had settled in their own towns, all the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. Then Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, joined his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, with his family in the rebuilding of the altar of the God of Israel. They wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, as instructed in the law of Moses, the man of God. Even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar at its old site. 
And they began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord each morning and each evening. It was not in defiance or rebellion that as they returned to the kingdom of Jerusalem that was in desolation that they decided to build the altar first. No, it was an act of wisdom. They started with the altar because it was a wise spiritual priority showing that they understood their need to have atonement from their sin. Remember, it was their sin that led them into captivity in the first place. They needed a fresh start. And the new start that God himself was giving them would, would be invalidated without the altar, which meant rep, or represented forgiveness for their past, but also a renewed consecration for the future that God had in store for them. They had no desire to go back into exile. They had no desire to head back to Babylon and live in bondage. Building the altar first signified the importance they had for true repentance. So they went back to the original site of that first altar, and they began to dig through the rubble, through the stones and the debris that had been left there, and they began to rub away the ashes to find the place that they knew the altar had once sat. Everything covering up that former foundation, that former place of sacrifice. They had no desire, hear me, to do it any differently than before. They went right back to the original way of sacrificing and repentance. The only reservation they had for rebuilding the altar of God was the threat of the pagan people in the land around them. Although we do not read of them being verbally or physically opposed, by building this altar, they were making a decree, and they were making an announcement in the world around them. They were announcing their presence, their return to Judah, and proclaimed that their intention was to rebuild the house of God. But it wasn't just the threat of war that made them afraid. It wasn't just this physical threat that kingdoms would once again come to war against them. But there was a spiritual threat from the people of these countries. They were conscious of how, in neglect of the altar in the past, they had become contaminated by the idolatrous practices of the surrounding people. And in order to prevent a repetition of such failure, they immediately set up the true altar, signifying true repentance. They remembered what put them into bondage and captivity in the first place and said, I'm not going to live like that anymore. I'm going back to the altar. I'm finding a place of sacrifice. I'm finding a place of repentance. I am changing how I live my life. Thank God for repentance. When we repent, it sends up a smoke signal, just like that Old Testament altar. It raises an alarm to the enemy of our souls, and it puts it on notice that we are not going to be bound by the same things that we used to be bound by. We're not going to live in exile, void of the presence of God, void of the house of God. But we are making a change in our lives. That is true repentance. But it also signified that this was just the beginning of a greater work that God had for his people and for his kingdom. At first, they built 
the altar. But immediately after finishing the altar, the people began to gather supplies to rebuild the temple of God, the house of the Lord, where the Ark of the Covenant used to sit and the glory would be manifested in their midst. They said, now that we have true repentance, now that we have turned from the way we used to live, we need to rebuild the house of God. There was a span of about seven months where the resources needed to rebuild and restore the temple were gathered. Led by Zerubbabel and Joshua, they began to lay the foundation. Craftsmen skilled in all manner of construction gathered to rebuild the house of God. And they didn't just find any old spot to rebuild the house of God. But just as they had done with an altar of sacrifice, they went back and found the old foundation where the temple once stood. And once again, they move the rubble. They take the stones away. They brush the ash and the dust and the soot off of where that old foundation used to be. And they began to lay a new foundation for the new temple that God had called them to build. They weren't looking for a newer or better way to build the house of God. They went right back to the way that it had first been built. Excitement rises amongst their ranks. The builders had completed the foundation of this new temple and the priests once again put on their robes and sit in place to blow the trumpets and they sounded cymbals and offered worship and praise and thanksgiving to the Lord for bringing them back to his house. They had a desire with everything that was within them to return to the house of the Lord. And it meant so much that they had been able to come back and begin to rebuild what the Lord had let them rebuild. To rebuild what the enemy had destroyed. They said, no, we are going to build the house of God. Ezra chapter 3 verses 11 to 12, New Living Translation. It says, with praise and thanks, they sang this song to the Lord. He is good. His faithful love for Israel endures forever. But I want you to take notice of this next part. Then all of the people gave a great shout, praising the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. Hear me, the temple had not fully been built yet. All it was was just a foundation. But it was a glimpse into what God was allowing them to restore. The foundation was enough for a cry to rise up in them, for them to begin to worship the Lord, because they had never seen anything like this before. Then all the people, they gave a great shout and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. Verse 12, but many of the older priests, Levites and other leaders who had seen the first temple wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. The others, however, were shouting for joy. There was an older generation that cried out because they were looking at the foundation of this new temple and they knew that it would not resemble the glory and the splendor and the magnificence of Solomon's temple, but the young men that had lived in exile, the young men that had lived away from the house of the Lord, when they began to lay that foundation, they said, this is the greatest thing I've ever been able to to be part of. This is the greatest thing I've ever witnessed with my own eyes. We are building the house 
of the Lord. So you have an older generation weeping, but you have the young men that didn't know what it was like to live in the kingdom of God. The crying and the joyfulness went together. Verse 13, it says, the joyful shouting and the weeping mingled together in a loud noise that could be heard far in the distance. The older men and women, the elders, they were looking back with longing, while the younger men were looking forward with joy. Both have, should have been looking up and praising the Lord for what He had allowed them to accomplish. We certainly can't ignore the past, but the past must not be an anchor to hold us back, but the past must be the rudder that steers us into the future of what God has for His church. Hallelujah. The restored building had nothing of the splendor of Solomon's temple, but it was still the house of the Lord. It was still built on the same foundation according to his plan and for his glory. The same ministry would be performed at its altars and the same worship would rise before the Lord. Times may change, but ministry goes on. The songs may change, but the worship is still for the Lord. The types of outreach that we do might change, but it's still for the glory of the Lord's. The lights might be different colors, pointing in a hundred directions. The music might be louder, and there may be some things that look different. But if the foundation is the same, that is what matters most of all. Hallelujah. What is that foundation? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, reading from the New King James Version. It says, now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a whole temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The foundation of everything that we build this church on. And I'm not talking about 71 Downing Street, but I'm talking about the church of the living God. The foundation that we build everything on is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. They were building this, the house of God on the same foundation. And that is our duty today. Everything we do starts with Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Rebuilding the temple was a multi-generational project. Rebuilding the house of the Lord was a multi-generational project. And I thank God for the elders that we have in our church, and I thank God for the elders that we have in our district we need to thank God for those that paved the way and led the way for us to be where we are today. It took both the elders and it took the youth also. The elders, because they were the only ones that had been to Jerusalem before, were the ones that had to show them where the foundation was. 
The younger generation had never entered the kingdom of Jerusalem. So it was those elders that led them back to that foundation and said, this is where the house of the Lord needs to be built. This is how the house of the Lord needs to be built. Without the elders, they might have missed the mark. They had experienced no resistance when the altar of sacrifice was restored. But the people of the land surrounding Jerusalem, the world around them, took notice when they began to build the house of the Lord. They took notice when there was a restoration happening on that old temple foundation. Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 to 5 New Living Translation. It says, The enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were rebuilding a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. So they approached Zerubbabel and other leaders and said, Let us build with you, for we worship your God just as you do. We've sacrificed to him ever since the last king of Assyria brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the other leaders of, leaders of Israel replied, You may have no part in this work. We alone build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, just as King Cyrus of Persia commanded us. Then the local residents, the people in the land around them, the world that was pushing in and encroaching on their territory, they tried to discourage and frighten the people of Judah to keep them from their work. They bribed agents. They they literally bribed people to go in and, and work against them and tried to frustrate their plans. The people of the land, the people that still served Babylon and were submission to false gods and idols and pagan leaders, they didn't stop them from trying to rebuild the temple at first. All they wanted to do was help. They wanted to show them how it needs to be done. Can I tell you that the methods about the enemy of our soul have not changed for thousands of years? Thousands of years ago, he was up to the same tricks that he is today. And we need to make sure that we are on guard. And I thank God for godly pastors that guard what gets brought into our church and proclaims truth because we need those people. But we must guard from having the world tell us how to build the house of God. They said, you don't have any part in building this house. This isn't your house. This is God's house. And we are not taking any tips and pointers from you, but we are building it the way that God instructed us to build it. Thank God that there were some leaders in Judah that said, you will have no part in this. We will build the temple. We will build the house of the Lord on our own. And when that didn't work, the people moved to discouragement and they tried to frighten the people. They hired workers to go in and mess up all of the plans that they were doing. And finally, when nothing else worked, everything that they tried to attack the nation of Judah with, none of it was to avail. They said, no, we're building the house the way that we know to build it. And so when nothing else worked, the leaders and the governors, they sent a letter to King Artaxerxes, the new king of Babylon, and he demanded those leaders to stop them from rebuilding the temple. And Ezra chapter 4, verses 23 to 24 says, with a show of strength, they forced the Jews to stop building. So the work of the temple of God in Jerusalem stopped. 
But there was a man of God, a prophet by the name of Haggai that stood up and prophesied to the Jews in Jerusalem. And the response of the people was that we need to continue to build the temple of God. They again faced opposition from the world around them. But God had a faithful remnant. The people had found favor in the eyes of the new king of Babylon. King Darius, he decreed that they be not hindered in building and also that the project of rebuilding the house of God be funded by the taxes collected in the regions around Jerusalem that were under the rule of Babylon. God proved his faithfulness to a faithful remnant. Things were looking up for them. The altar had been restored. Repentance for their past shortcoming, uh, their past shortcomings were poured out before the Lord, and a fresh consecration was made. The house of the Lord, the temple of God, was restored. Once again, they could come to an altar, and once again, they could come to the house of God. Now they had a place of worship to congregate at once again. But they began to regress back into who they used to be before God delivered them from Babylon. Even though the Lord was calling them to build his kingdom, they had let their guard down, which would return them right back to who they used to be and how things used to be. They were distracted by the house of God that they failed to see that the kingdom of God still needed to be built. Sacrifice had been restored in the kingdom. Worship had been restored in the kingdom, but the walls of Jerusalem had yet to be restored. So in Ezra chapter 9 verse 1, it's no surprise when we read a verse as this. He said, when these things had been done, the altar had been built, the temple had been built, fresh consecration to the Lord, sacrifice and worship. Jewish leaders came to me and said, many of the people of Israel, even some of the priests and Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the people living in the land. Many people have not kept themselves separate from the other people living in the land. They have taken up the detestable practices of all those nations around them. The people had fallen prey to the way things that used to be. Yes, they had an altar of sacrifice back. Yes, they had the house of God back. Yes, they had their worship back. They had sacrifice, repentance, and worship, but they had not yet built the walls. They had not created a separation between themselves and the people living in the land around them. The only distinction that they had as God's remnant was their sacrifice and their worship. Their religion is what made them stand out. But they had no, made no provision to separate themselves so that they would not regress to who they had used to be. God 
didn't put us, the modern day church, through two years of hell to come back and just come to the same church, to fall prey to the same sin, to fall back into the same lifestyle, to pick up that same yoke of bondage that we used to walk around with, to live life with the same complacent heart, with a lack of desire to see the kingdom of God grow. The Lord is calling a remnant in this church, and the Lord is calling a remnant in this generation to build the walls and restore his kingdom hallelujah worship and sacrifice worship and sacrifice just became a religious activity hear me worship and sacrifice and schedule can lead you into religion And for 70 years, the walls of Jerusalem remained unrestored. 70 years of sacrifice, 70 years of worship, 70 years of coming back to the house of God. But the walls lied in ruin. There was no separation to the world around them. God is calling a remnant. God is calling a people to come out of the world. He didn't put us through two years of lockdown and restriction just to go back into religion. He is calling us to build his kingdom. I'm sorry for yelling so much, but this word has been eating at my spirit for seven weeks, and I don't like to get up here and talk louder than I have to, but I can't ignore the burden and the passion and the fervency that I have in my spirit for what God is wanting to do. So finally, somebody said enough is enough. Nehemiah chapter 1. Verses 1 to 3, and I will not be a whole lot longer. It says, in late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. And I asked them about the Jews who had returned from their captivity and how things were going in Jerusalem. And they said to me, things are great. It's awesome. They rebuilt the altar. You should see it. They've rebuilt the temple, the house of God, and every day they sacrifice and they worship. It's an amazing sight to see. It's a sight like we haven't seen in our midst for a while. Sacrifice and worship. Sacrifice and worship. No. As a matter of fact, they don't even mention either the altar or the temple. They don't mention the sacrifice and the worship and the religion. They, they had found themselves bound in once again. What he said was, they said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And Nehemiah, his heart sinks into his chest and he begins to cry out to God carrying a burden to see the glory of Jerusalem, God's kingdom restored in the earth. The remnant had succumbed to status quo. Living in desolation and destruction had become the normal. Their beloved city was in ruin, and they were doing nothing about it. 
But Nehemiah, just a normal guy. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a preacher. He wasn't a Levite. He didn't serve in the temple. He was just a normal person like you and like me. But there was a burden in the heart and in the spirit of Nehemiah that said, I've got to go and rebuild and restore the kingdom. Nehemiah desired the glory of God. Jerusalem was surrounded by its enemies, and it seemed foolish for the residents to go and improve their houses and their dwellings when nothing was safe from invasion and plunder. Over the years, the citizens had been accustomed to their plight. Like too many Christians in the church today, they were content to live with the status quo. But then Nehemiah arrived on the scene and challenged them to rebuild the city of the Lord. Now walls, in a physical sense, provide separation. And by providing separation, there is protection and there is security. And the gates within a wall allow you to control what comes in and what goes out. But the focus of Nehemiah wasn't just on a physical protection because the people in Jerusalem were living in relative peace. For 70 years, they had sacrificed. For 70 years, they had come to the house of the Lord and worshiped. For 70 years, they had brought those animals and that livestock and offered them on that altar. And there was no opposition Hear me, there was no opposition. Nobody was stopping them from bringing their sacrifice. Nobody was trying to resist them from worship. There was no conflict. There was no war. The people of a, around the land had let them be because they knew that the people did not pose a threat. The focus was on a spiritual separation from the world around them. Lack of separation creates lack of sustainability, which is why we see Christians live lifestyles that have mountaintop experiences and the lowest of low valleys because there's a lack of separation. And every once in a while, we step back into the world and we begin to mingle with the world. And all of a sudden, we begin to regress into the same old yokes of bondage that we used to live under. Lack of separation creates lack of sustainability. Their sacrifice and worship did not separate them from the world around them. It certainly gave them a certain distinction in the land. But the people who don't know the Lord sacrifice and worship all the time. They might not realize it. The people that you work with, your family members that might not serve the Lord yet, they might not even realize it, but they have an idol. There is something in their life that they worship. It might be money. It might be success. It might be striving to reach retirement, but there is something that everybody worships. And so their worship and their sacrifice made them distinct to who they were serving but worship and sacrifice alone wasn't enough separation. Walls would be required to create a separation and a distinction between the people of the earth. It would mean that work would be required. It would mean that the status quo wouldn't cut it any longer. It would mean that they couldn't go back to who they were, a people living in exile, in bondage. So Nehemiah, he makes that trek to Jerusalem, and he begins to survey the landscape at nightfall. 
He petitions a few men. He says, come with me. We're going to go inspect the walls. We're going to go take a look at the gates. And as he walks around that city, the city of God, his chosen city, he tells him about the burden that God had laid on his heart for that city. Nehemiah and the leaders of Jerusalem agreed it was time to build the wall. And it wasn't until they started building the wall that they faced the greatest, most aggressive opposition that they had ever seen since returning to Jerusalem. The altar and the temple did not bring as much opposition as the call to rebuild the wall did. The altar and the temple did not bring as much opposition as a call to be separate from the world did. We can come back to the music tonight. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, New Living Translation. Sanballat, who was a leader of the world in that area, he was very angry. And when he learned that they were rebuilding the wall, he flew into a rage and he mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Samaritan army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think that they are doing? Do they think that they can rebuild the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of the stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? They had destroyed the wall, but they had left all the building blocks there. And Tobiah, the Ammonite who was standing beside him, he remarked, he said that stone wall would collapse even if a fox walked along the top of it. Skipping down to verse 7. Because the people ignored them. They said, we're going to continue to build the wall. We're going to continue to be separate from the world. We're going to make sure that we make provision, that we don't go back to the way that things used to be. We're going to make provision to make sure that we're not going to be bound any longer. Verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired. They were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw them all into confusion. Religion did not trigger opposition. Separation did. The enemy of your soul doesn't care if you're living a religious life. He cares if you're living a separate life. Can I show you what happens when you begin to live a life separated from the world around you? The leaders and the governors surrounding Jerusalem, they wrote to the king Artaxerxes of Babylon and they said this, Ezra chapter 4 verses 12 to 13. They said this, they said, King, you should know that the Jews who came here to Jerusalem from Babylon are rebuilding this rebellious and evil city. They've already laid the foundation of the temple and they will soon finish its walls. And the king should know that if the city is rebuilt and if the walls are completed, it will be to your disadvantage. For the Jews will then refuse to pay tribute, customs, and tolls to you. Down to verse 16. They said, we declare to the king that if that city is rebuilt, if the kingdom of God is rebuilt, and if the walls are completed, the provinces west of the Euphrates River will be lost to you. 
Here's what happens when there's a church, when there's a group of people that say, I need to live a separate life. I don't want to fall back into the way that things used to be. I don't want to get so sucked up into religion that I don't know what it's like to build the kingdom because I'm just too busy following a schedule and sacrificing and worshiping, which in and of themselves are great things. But if you just do it over and over again, it can seem a little mundane. And they lost the vision that God had for them, which was to rebuild the kingdom. And so there were four reasons why the king must order the Jews to stop rebuilding in Jerusalem. First, history showed that Jerusalem was indeed a rebellious and wicked city in many ways. If Jerusalem was restored, they argued, if the kingdom was restored, it would rebel against the king of the world and declare its independence. If Jerusalem was in ruins, it was defenseless against the king's forces. So what they were saying is, we need to make sure that we make sure that their guard is down. We need to make sure that if at any moment they try to rise up, we need to make sure that if any moment they start to serve the Lord a little bit further and a little bit deeper, that if their defenses are down, we can go in and make them, uh, put them back into the bondage that we had them in before. He wanted to keep them defenseless. The second thing was that an independent Judah would mean a loss of revenue and tribute to the empire of Babylon. He wanted to make sure that the people in Jerusalem were being fruitful for his kingdom and not for God's kingdom. Third, a successful rebellion would also dishonor the king. And what king wants to have one of his provinces successfully rebel against him? Because this might encourage other provinces to follow their example. Their example of rebuilding the kingdom. Their example of being separate from the world. Their example of constructing the altar and the house of the Lord. And the walls would be an example to the world around them. Encourage other people to say, you know what? I get it. I don't have to live like this anymore. I get it. I don't have to live in this bondage that I've been living in. I get it. I see a people that are living free and not under the rule and reign of the princes and powers of the air of this world. I get it. There's a people that are living free and I want to be a part of that people. Their example would encourage the world around them. But finally, if the Jews succeeded in rebuilding and rebelling, they would no doubt conquer the entire territory across the Euphrates which meant that rebuilding the kingdom of God would give them dominion and authority to conquer the earth around them. And so God, in this room tonight, I pray that this seed has fallen on the good ground of your hearts, so that your heart was ready to receive what the Lord is trying to speak to us. Receive what God has been speaking and dealing with me for seven weeks about. God is calling a people, not just back to an altar, not just back to worship, not just back to the house of the Lord, which we have been absent for in many ways for two years, but God is saying, don't just get distracted with that. We need to make sure we get to building the kingdom of God. God, because separation doesn't just affect you, it affects everybody around you. Separation 
doesn't just impact your life, but it impacts the life of the people in your family that don't know the Lord yet. It impacts the people that you go to school with. It impacts the people that you go to work with. It impacts the people that you happen to bump into in the grocery store. It impacts the world around you, but God is calling a people. We've got to be separate. We've got to build the kingdom. Don't get distracted with the temple. Don't just get distracted with the altar and worship, but let's Build the kingdom. Let's be separate from the world. Separation doesn't affect you. It affects everything and everyone around you. And that's why Peter, so full of the Holy Ghost, so anointed that they said when he walked through the streets that his shadow would touch people and it would heal them because Peter was pursuing a life of separation. Peter was pursuing a life of holiness that even just walking by somebody, it affected them. It set them free. It delivered them. It healed them. Would you stand with me tonight? Would you lift your hands to the Lord? And would you lift your voices to the Lord tonight? Lord Jesus, I sense your presence doing a work in this room right now. And God, I pray that we would fix our eyes, not physically, but spiritually on the things of your kingdom. That God, you have a work that you want to do in the world around us. God, you have a work that you want to do in the provinces and in the land around us. But God, in order to do that work, you need a people that are separate. God, in order to do that work, you need a people that have been called out, that have been redeemed and set free and delivered, and a people that are pursuing the kingdom of God. Would you lift your voices with me tonight? The Lord is doing a work in this room. There's a consecration in the spirit that is entering this room right now. Lord Jesus, God, we are so thankful to be gathered in your house once again. God, it's been so long since we've been able to gather in the way that we used to. God, I'm so thankful that there's an altar that at any moment somebody can run up to and receive their healing. God, I thank you that there is an altar that at any moment somebody can run and say, God, I don't want to live the way I've been living anymore. And they can have a heart of repentance, have a true moment, an act of repentance. But God, beyond that, beyond just the altar and beyond just the temple, beyond just the house of the Lord, you are calling us to build your kingdom. God, you are calling us to be separate in order to impact the world around us. So God, I pray that there will be a fresh consecration in this room tonight. God, I pray that there will be a fresh burden. God, I pray that your spirit would grip our hearts and our minds with a new understanding, with a renewed understanding. God, would you restore our heart and our mind and give us a hunger and a thirst for the things of your kingdom. I want to open this altar tonight, and I want this to be an altar of consecration. You can begin to come as I speak and say, God, God, I don't want to get caught up in religion.
God, I want to serve your kingdom. I want to build your kingdom. I'm not satisfied with the status quo. I don't just want to go through the motions anymore when you called us from good to great. I don't want to just go to church and run through a song service and hear a nice message and go home unchanged. But God, I'm coming to this altar tonight. God, I am laying my life at your feet. And God, I am saying I'm going to live separate from the world around me. And it's not just for my benefit, Lord, but I want to impact my friends. I want to impact my neighbors. I want to impact my community. I don't want to work for this world. I want to build your kingdom. God, I want to be an encouragement to other people. God, I want to be a testimony to other people of your saving grace and the glory of God that healed me. God, I commit and I consecrate my life to you again tonight. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.